0: In his name we pray, amen. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Dr. Harvey, when he came in November, ended up preaching from Romans one eighteen to 23. So last week I preached from verse 17, now we're jumping from verse 17 to verse 24. Uh, and uh, Dr. Harvey ended up preaching that way because I preached behind schedule, maybe uh, not a surprise in that sense. Uh, but... Uh, I'm going to have a more extended introduction, Uh, so I'm going to ask you uh, in love. In love, I will labor to, to try to keep us clear and moving forward in the introduction, but I'll ask you in love to labor to follow along as you're able, because what I want to do in the introduction is to bring us from verses 16 to 17 through verses 18 to 23 to verse 24, and then we'll dive into verse 24, and I want to begin Verses 16 to 17, these verses are essential. If you haven't memorized them, I'd encourage you to memorize them. Verses 16 to 17, I want us to focus there, have your Bibles open, look there. And I want to begin by asking a question from verses 16 to 17 as we move toward verse 24. Why is the gospel and its proclamation necessary? Why is the gospel and its proclamation necessary? Coming from verses 16 to 17, really verse 15 as well, Paul says, One thing I want to do among you, minister the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power that results in salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith, for faith, just as it has been written, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. So why is Paul telling us in verses 16 to 17 that the gospel and its proclamation are necessary? There's another way to ask the same question. Expand on it. Why is the gospel and its ongoing ministry essential to who we are, to why we gather, and to what we do as the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ? Another way to ask the question. Why is the gospel and its proclamation the necessary means by which God has determined to accomplish his purpose for this world? We're all agreed. God created with a purpose. Just read that in Isaiah 46. From the beginning, declaring the end, a blood-bought people in Christ, by his spirit, dwelling in the new creation with Christ. And the way we get there. God's determined the end, but he's also determined means. The way we get there is through gospel proclamation. Why? I ask this question in part because gospel ministry is hard. On Tuesday, Trinity Pastors College in Nairobi held its orientation for their new cohort of students. They asked me to speak virtually to the students on the seriousness of their call. So I spoke to them from 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. Share in suffering For the gospel by the power of God. I wanted the word to set their expectations. The scriptures make clear that gospel ministry necessarily involves all kinds of suffering. It's hard. Faithful gospel ministry must endure sufferings by God's own power, which he supplies to us in Christ. We can't do gospel ministry on our own. It requires the Spirit's power. My point in sharing the excerpt they suppress upon us the question, why is the gospel and its proclamation necessary, essential, always, everywhere, to the end of the ages, to the ends of the earth? We must grasp this answer clearly if we're going to endure in gospel ministry when suffering comes or compromise tempts us or an easier way seems more appealing. And I hope you understand this question is for our whole church. Pastor elders have a special interest in the question, but it's for all of our lives. It's for all of our dinner tables. I'll give you an example from my week, from my wife's week. At work or in school, why must you be resolved to confess Christ as Lord when the opportunity arises and you know that you will suffer as a result? My wife is in college. Her teachers uh, want her to use uh, pronouns for, I don't know all the language, but to use the the appropriate pronouns to say birthing person instead of mother. And for the first time, she has a class where the the, uh, teacher hasn't just asked her to do that, but it's in the rubric. And when she introduces herself, she's supposed to say her pronouns as she introduces herself and and why is it essential for my wife in that situation or for you in that situation not just to say here's my name here's my pronouns why is it essential for you in that situation at work or at school not just to say here's my name and just ignore the pronouns and kind of go on quietly why is it essential for you to say when that opportunity arises listen friends i belong to christ he's lord he's redeemed me from lies He's redeemed me to walk in the truth. And I can't share in this practice. You understand what I'm saying? It's not just enough not to do it. Why must we confess Christ as Lord in that moment? Here's another example. At home, why must you labor? Parents, grandparents, family, friends. At home, why must you labor? And it is a labor. One that requires God's own power to minister the gospel to your family from all of Scripture when it would be easier to just turn the TV on or go to bed or speak a harsh word or rely on whatever child-rearing technique is today's fad? Why must you, parent, grandparents, minister the gospel to your children when they sin in family worship? Why is that essential? As a church, Why must we continue to focus on the biblical gospel and labor in its proclamation here and among the nations, though such ministry is rejected by the natural man, hated by this idolatrous world, and impossible without the empowering presence and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? A few months ago, Taylor said something along the lines of, why are we surprised that church requires the Holy Spirit to be done rightly. Why are we surprised that church is hard? Why are we surprised that gospel ministry is hard? It's a reality that's only possible by the Holy Spirit. Why crossroads? Must we continue to keep the gospel central to who we are, to pray for the gospel's advance in the world, to give sacrificially for the gospel's advance among the nations, to submit ourselves in the humility of Christ to members who keep us accountable to elders who oversee our souls that the truth of the gospel might be maintained in what we confess and in how we live here's what I'm asking there are easier ways aren't there speaking as a man easier ways to grow a church there's easier ways to be a friend there's easier ways to raise children easier ways to engage globally, easier ways to live out our short years in this world with prosperity and peace. Why is Romans 1, 16 to 17 necessary for our church? Why is the gospel and its proclamation necessary and essential to who we are, to what we do, to why we exist, Crossroads Fellowship? Imagine a conversation with Paul at this point. You're 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 in the Roman church. You've read verse 15. Paul says, I just want to come do one thing among you. Preach the gospel. You've read Romans 15, 22 to 33, where Paul says, I've got to go to Spain. What if we were to say back to Paul, Paul, the church in Rome already has the gospel. From Jerusalem and all along the eastern edges of the Mediterranean Sea, you've already fearlessly, and faithfully proclaimed the gospel in its fullness before all through great suffering. Why do you have to go to Spain and proclaim the gospel there? Besides, isn't it time for something new? And, and won't they need a different message? And haven't you labored and suffered enough? Won't God save his people there without you, Paul? The answer, of course, is a qualified no. The gospel and its proclamation, this is what Paul's saying in verses 16 to 17, is necessary, essential, and of first importance to what God has purposed for our world, to what Christ has called us to do and to be as his church. Through the gospel, verses 16 to 17, and only through the gospel, God saves and sustains his people. In the gospel, and only in the gospel, God reveals his saving righteousness to us, which he gives to us freely as a gift in our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we receive by faith. This gift of righteousness which we receive in Christ, which God supernaturally reveals only in the gospel and its preaching, is the only way for us to escape the coming wrath and to be secured by God for eternal salvation. Let me try to summarize verses 16 to 17 one more time. Simply. Even kids, you can get this. What Paul's saying in verses 16 to 17, no gospel, no salvation. No gospel, no salvation. And we could even expand that to say no salvation, which means no justification, no sanctification, no glorification. Without the gospel, we will die. Without the gospel, no man or woman or boy or girl will escape sin's dominion or God's judgment. Without the gospel and its proclamation, God's people will perish. Now, perhaps here, some of you object. But hasn't God spoken in other ways? Doesn't God reveal himself in creation? And we want to answer that what? Yes. That's the right question to ask because now we're moving from verses 16 to 17 to verses 18 to 23. Paul says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, look at verse 18, against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth. Here it is in verse 19. Doesn't God speak in other ways? He does. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God speaks gloriously in creation. The apostle tells us in Romans 1, 19 to 20, That God has revealed and continues to reveal in creation his glory as the eternal and almighty creator to all humanity. Let's make it specific. Every sunrise you see displays his glory. Every thunderstorm you hear proclaims his power. Every insect creeping along the ground unveils his wisdom the thunderous rhythm of the waves upon the shore, Paul is telling us in verses 19 to 20, the cicadas, summer song, the lightning's flash, the raindrops, formation and fall, they are proclaiming all over this vast earth that there is a creator, that he's glorious, and through them, God is summoning all people everywhere to worship him alone. That's the biblical perspective on creation. When you smell those fresh roasted coffee beans. Mm. When you hear the toddler's incontrollable laughter. When you feel the warmth of the spring sun on your face after winter. Children, when you taste the sweet richness of ice cream when you see the wonder of the stars at night, your heart ought to explode with joyous worship of the Creator, who is, as Paul declares in Romans 1.25, blessed forever. Amen. And all people everywhere, among every nation, in every place, during every time, live in creation. And so all people everywhere have access to what God reveals about himself in creation, don't they? Every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue can know God as creator. Ought to know and worship God as creator, even without the scriptures, even without the gospel. So why do Kyle and Bethany have to endure much suffering to leave home live in West Africa, and give themselves to translating the scriptures there? And why must we labor and suffer in prayer and giving to support them? Why do we need to keep laboring in the word to proclaim the gospel each Lord's Day in what we sing and in what we preach? Why do you need to risk shame and embarrassment and rejection to explain the gospel and to confess Christ before your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates. Isn't creation enough? Won't they figure it out eventually? Paul's telling us, Romans 1.18 to 23. In creation, God reveals himself as creator. Summons all people everywhere to worship him. We call this revelation, general Revelation. It's available to all people everywhere. But general revelation never brings salvation. What God reveals about himself in creation to all people everywhere, including unreached people groups who've never heard the gospel and your unknown neighbors alongside of whom God has placed you that you might share the gospel with them, and the children of your home, none of them can be saved by general revelation. It's not just that Paul tells us in verses 18 to 23 that God makes himself known in creation as the creator. Look at these verses. Verse 20 is the heart of it. They are without excuse. General revelation exposes fallen man's wickedness and condemns him before God. What God reveals about himself in creation ought to lead all people everywhere to know him as their glorious and almighty creator. To give him thanks constantly, with every breath. To honor him alone in their wholehearted worship. But when general revelation met fallen man, the apostle declares to us in verses 18 to 23... And again, he really wants to make the point, he's going to say the same thing in verse 25. What does man do? Man suppresses the truth that God reveals about himself. When general revelation meets the heart of fallen man, man rejects it. And man has exchanged and keeps exchanging the glorious God in whose image we were made, the living God, the one who sees and hears and saves, fallen man sees that truth about God and says, you know what? I'm going to trade him in. And you know what I'm going to trade him in for? I'm going to trade him in for rocks shaped like animals, wood carved like birds. 21st century America, we're past that kind of thing, right? But how far past are we? We just, we just, skip, we, we just skip the images and make ourselves the image, don't we? We turn God into a God who acts and looks like us. And if we don't do that, if we're not religious, we don't do that, we just throw it all aside and decide to live like I'm God. We trade the living God in for our own reign, our own foolishness, our own self-deceived wickedness and corruption. To say it again, verses 18 to 23, general revelation cannot save. Creation cannot save because when the truth hits fallen hearts, man trades that truth in for the lie, seeks worship for himself, and serves created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever Amen. So to leave, here's the implication. To leave the nations, to leave our neighborhoods, to leave our children with no explicit gospel and only to general revelation is to leave them in a self-deceived and idolatrous lie that exposes their natural wickedness and condemns them before God. It's verses 18 to 23. But the cruelty, and it is cruelty, isn't it? For us to have the message of salvation, the means by which God powerfully saves and sustains his people from every nation, the cruelty of a gospel-light church and a gospelless life that leaves the nations and our neighborhoods to their own wickedness and just condemnation is more than this. And now that's where Paul's going to in verses 24 to 32. It's not just that general revelation exposes man's wickedness. In verses 24 to 32, the Holy Spirit through Paul wants us to understand that general revelation produces only further judgment. Again, just to say it clearly, verses 18 to 23, general revelation reveals man's wickedness. Verses 24 to 32, it's not just that it reveals man's wickedness, it brings further judgment. Apart from God's power exerted through the gospel and God's righteousness revealed in the gospel, man can hope for only one reality judgment. We could summarize the main message of verse 24 in this way. Because of man's idolatrous response to him, God has justly judged humanity by subjecting them to the control of their sinful desires. Verse 24. Because of their idolatrous response to him, God has justly judged humanity by subjecting them to the control of their sinful desires. One more thing I want to do before we jump into verse 24. I want you to understand it's not just verses 18 to 23 or verses 24 to 32. We've now stepped into a new section. We've walked through a doorway into a new room in Romans. Verses 16 to 17 were the, the main message of Romans. Verses 1 to 17, you have all this talk of the gospel and salvation. Now we've come to Romans 1.18. And this room extends all the way to Romans 3, verse 20. And in this section, Romans 1.18 to 3, verse 20, the apostle is seeking to do one thing. He wants to expose natural man's wicked and desperate state. Through Paul, the Holy Spirit in, verses, in Romans one eighteen to 3.20 reveals two trustworthy and authoritative realities about natural man or humanity in Adam. Taylor reminded me this morning, we all have an anthropology. We all have certain beliefs about natural man. Uh, clearest example I can think of is Star Wars. The most wicked movie villain that ever came along, Darth Vader, The last movie, how is he saved? Well, Darth Vader, I know there's still good in that heart. I know there's still good in that heart. And from that good that's left in your heart, you can redeem yourself. You can resist the emperor, you can throw him over, and you can undo all the the wicked things you have done, the planets you've destroyed. That's a silly example. I'm just trying to show you. You have an anthropology, you hear it all the time. You, you hear it in the, in the way we prescribe solutions to the world's problems. Man's naturally good. What he needs is less authority, not more. Man, man is naturally good. He's, he's just a little confused. He needs more education. What is the biblical anthropology of natural man? Paul wants us to understand two points in Romans 1.18 to 3.20. Number one, Romans 3 verse 9. This is where Paul's trying to go in this whole section. Romans 3 verse 9. I'll read what he says. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's the first place Paul is trying to bring us. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. In other words, in this section, Paul wants us to understand sin enslaves and dominates all humanity in Adam. Sin dominates natural man. Number two, Romans 3 verse 20. Number one, sin dominates natural man, Romans 3 verse 9, Romans 3 verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. In other words, our condition is so wicked and desperate in Adam that no man or woman or boy or girl is able to save himself. You cannot do enough. You cannot be enough to earn salvation for yourself to secure life by some remnant of goodness in your heart. When we lose sight of, how, of just how wicked and desperate man's state in Adam is, we necessarily loosen our grip on the gospel and rely on other messages and other means to save us and to sustain us. When we stop believing in what God reveals about man's state in Adam, we stop preaching the gospel in our churches Bringing the gospel to the nations, explaining the gospel in our neighborhoods, trusting the gospel in our lives, and we become angry, self-righteous people and weak, unloving churches that cannot be satisfied. The preaching of Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, will be demolition work to destroy our natural pride, to shatter our human idols, The preaching of Romans 1 verse 18 through 3 verse 20 will be diagnostic work to expose our desperate state to pinpoint the root cause of our disease. So bring your hard hats. Prepare your hearts. Pray. Because don't we long for freedom from our idols? Don't you long for freedom from your confidence in yourself, either the pride that comes with it or the despair that flows from it. Paul begins this section in Romans 1, verse 18 through 23, by explaining how general revelation exposes man's idolatrous heart and condemns all people before God. Now in verse 24, the apostle reveals that general revelation produces only further judgment. Say the main point of verse 24 again. Because of their idolatrous response to general revelation, God has justly judged humanity by subjecting them to the control of their sinful desires. So for a brief time, let us direct our hearts and with them our eyes and ears to verse 24. Look there with me. Therefore, God gave them up or... Another way to translate it, delivered them over into the domain or the control of their sinful desires that come from their hearts for impurity or moral corruption so that their bodies would be dishonored by them. Paul begins by connecting verse 24 to what came before. What word, inspired by the Spirit, does he use to connect verse 24? Look there with me, first word. What word does he use to connect verse 24 to verses 18 to 23? What word? Therefore. So Paul wants us to understand that verses 18 to 23 are the reason for verse 24. And verse 24 is, essentially and inescapably, a statement that reveals what God has done. Do you see it there in verse 24? In verse 26? In verse 28? Verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. These verses are about what God has done. It's grammatically inescapable. Through the apostle, God puts the spotlight on himself and therefore tells us that God has acted in verse 24 in response to man. Follow the chain of Paul's argument here. Scripture isn't just a bunch of disconnected propositions put together. Paul's making an argument. Verse 19, God revealed his glory in creation. Verses 21 to 23, man responded to God's glory in creation with idolatry. So verse 24, because of man's idolatrous response, God judged humanity. So I hope you understand the root sin is what? Idolatry. We'll talk more about that next week. Now where do I see judgment in verse 24? We see judgment in the primary verb, that describes what God has done. Look at verse 24. God gave them up, or delivered them into, or put them under the control of. If you were to read your Old Testament, you would encounter this verb again and again. In the Old Testament, it describes how God judges a person or a people by putting them under the control of another who executes his judgment. He puts them into, his hand, into their hand. He, he gives them over into their hand that their enemies might execute God's judgment upon them. It's analogous in our own judicial system to what happens after a judge pronounces the guilty verdict and determines the sentence. By his authority, he gives the condemned over to the control of the prison authorities who take the condemned under their power and control and execute the judge's judgment. So again, verses 18 to 23, general revelation doesn't save anyone. It condemns all people everywhere, leaving them, verse 20, without excuse. Man doesn't worship idols because he doesn't know about God. Man worships idols because he wants them, and he doesn't want God. Indeed, verse 25 tells us, fallen man prefers dead idols to the living God. Verse 24, so God has justly judged man by giving them up, delivering them into, putting them under the control of another to execute his judgment. We don't merely live in a world awaiting judgment. We are waiting for the climactic judgment. There is a promised and climactic judgment coming. But in Scripture, when the apostles look out at the world, they tell us it's also already here. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. Whose control, God's judged man by putting him under the control of another, whose control has God put man under? Whose power has he given man over to? Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up, or Put them under the power of the sinful desires of their hearts. What does the apostle mean? He means first that man's fallen heart is idolatrous. That fallen man's heart is filled with wicked desires. Wanting death and sin and folly and idolatry rather than life and holiness and wisdom and God. What we see in Old Testament Israel. Remember what Moses says to them about the law? Really what Yahweh says to them through Moses about the law? This law is for your good. I'm for your good always. The law is good. And Isaiah says we left God's path because we wanted to follow our own. We choose death and not life. We choose idolatry and not worship. Where do these desires come from? Look at the verse. The lusts of their hearts. In other words, our wicked desires don't come from outside of us, but from within. Look at verse 24. These lusts come from man's fallen heart, from man's nature in Adam. Our own wanters generate these wicked wants. And God has judged man by giving us over to these wicked desires, by subjecting man to their power over him, that they might execute God's judgment. Allow me to illustrate the truth about man that the spirit has revealed through the apostle here. I grew up near Niagara Falls. We visited from time to time. On the American side of the falls, the Niagara River rages and roils towards its cataclysmic rush over the edge and crashes down on the boulders below. And whenever I visited, I'm leaning on the railing and I stared at the water long enough, I would always be overcome by the river's irresistible and inescapable flow. If you're in the middle of the Niagara River, you are going over the falls the water will necessarily sweep you toward a cataclysmic doom upon the rocks below. Let me explain the illustration now. For Paul, the sinful desires that come from man's idolatrous heart are like a raging Niagara River rushing toward the falls. In Adam, man is like a fool who has stepped over the railing, jumped into the river, and is trying to swim toward the middle but he's been held onto like a rope by God's inescapable power from going into the middle of the river where the waters flow at full force. And so he screams and yells and spits at God, let me follow my heart, let me be me. I don't need you, I don't want you, let me be free to swim in the river of my desires. Now, some of you think you know where this illustration will go. You think I'm about to say, so God in judgment, let them go. But such a statement would be unfaithful to what the Spirit reveals through the apostle here in Romans 1.24. It cannot be reconciled with the verb's grammar. Paul could have said they were handed over, but three times he says, God did it, God did it, God did it. It can't be reconciled with the verb's meaning. It means to give over, not just to let go of, but to give over into the control of another. God has judged man for his idolatry not merely by letting him go into the full force of his wicked desires as man wants, but by putting him there as a judgment under the full inescapable control of his sinful desires so that they might sweep him even as he happily swims in them and toward their end over the falls. Natural man has said to God, Let me be me. Let me follow my heart. In judgment, God has said to natural man, You be you. Follow your heart. And then he put man under the power of the sinful desires that flow forth naturally and willingly from his idolatrous heart church let us not do as we once did exchanging the god who reveals himself in scripture for an idol more acceptable to our wicked tastes who are we to think that we know justice better than god god is perfect justice at this revelation of his justice in Romans 1.24, we ought to be like students learning what justice is. We ought to worship him as God, give thanks for his justice, even as we tremble before this revelation of his wrath against man's idolatry and wickedness and unrighteousness. Now, what is the false? Use the illustration of Niagara River. The rivers are, are wicked once, We're swimming in them, being swept away. Where are we being swept away to? In other words, God has judged man's idolatry by putting man under the control of his wicked desires. Where have these lusts, these sinful desires, these wicked wants taken man? Look at verse 24. The ESV says to impurity. Another way to translate it would be moral corruption. But what the word particularly has in mind is sexual immorality. And the final phrase of verse 24 explains why this destination is God's just judgment for our idolatry. The ESV translates the final phrase of verse 24, look there with me, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. But they end up obscuring the meaning by translating in that way. If you have an NASB Bible, you'll see the meaning the Spirit inspired Paul to write much more clearly. It's not just to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. There's a purpose statement. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Again, let's back up. Let's understand what the apostle has written. In creation, God has revealed himself as man's glorious and almighty creator in whose image man has been made. With his idolatrous heart, fallen man has rejected God the creator in whose glorious image he has been made. And turned him in for gods that look like beasts. So God has judged idolatrous man by putting him under the full control of his lusts so that he might be willingly carried by those desires into sexual immorality and so dishonor his body by such wickedness. And you do see God's justice in this, don't you? It's rooted in our created nature as those whom God made uniquely in his image. Remember who man is. Man is an image to reflect God. Man is an ambassador to represent God, living images of the living God. Our creation in God's image is what makes us unique and more valuable than any beast or animal. Our worth is not inherent Our worth is rooted in the reality that we uniquely represent and relate to God as image bearers. And natural man has sought to throw off the one in whose image we have been made. All people in Adam have sought to free themselves from their created purpose of glorifying and enjoying him. But friends, a reflection in a mirror can't break the mirror or break free from the one whom it reflects without breaking itself. An ambassador can't dishonor his own country or king without dishonoring himself. In response to what God has revealed about himself in creation, humanity has dishonored God by their idolatry and sought freedom from God to pursue their wicked ones. In Adam, man turned God in, traded him to worship beastly gods. So God has ensured that man has gotten what he wants. He has put man under the power of his sinful desires to be dominated by sin and carried away into sexual immorality. And man can't say, God made me do it, because it's the very thing that proceeds from his heart and the very thing he wants in this way god has purposed that natural man so desirous of dishonoring god would dishonor himself by the immorality he wants with his heart and does with his body you understand the implication then among every nation during every time you will find sexual immorality the kind of sexual immorality sometimes changes from place to place and from time to time. In my visits to Kenya, I've never, had to, uh, I've never had to speak against certain issues we had to speak against here. And in my preaching here, I don't think I've ever had to proclaim the wickedness of polygamy. Sexual immorality changes from place to place, can change from place to place from time to time. There's some times and places where it's more restrained sometimes in places where it's less restrained, but all around this world we find it. All kinds of sexual immorality. And Paul is saying that we aren't meant to see such wickedness and think, poor God, look at how no one listens to him. Church, we certainly aren't meant to applaud it when we see sexual immorality, or ignore it, or bless it, or excuse it, or God forbid, participate in it anymore. Such were some of us, but we were washed, but we were sanctified, but we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And we know that our old nature was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be set aside so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin, 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 6. No, church, when we sex- see sexual immorality around the world, we are seeing Romans 1.18, God's wrath being revealed from heaven against our idolatry. When we see sexual immorality around the world, in the movies, we're not seeing something glamorous or good or desirable or neutral. When we see sexual immorality, we are seeing idolatrous man dominated by his own wicked desires, dishonoring his own body as God's just judgment against his idolatry. Do you see then why the gospel and its proclamation is so necessary? Why general revelation isn't enough? All people everywhere know what God has revealed in creation, that he is the glorious and almighty creator, And that general revelation produces no salvation. Instead, it produces only further judgment. And you say, where is the proof? Paul says the evidence of this reality is in the fact that sexual immorality exists all over the earth. Because of man's idolatrous response to general revelation, God has justly judged humanity by subjecting them to the control of their sinful desires these sinful desires have carried fallen humanity away just as God justly purposed into all kinds of sexual immorality by which man willingly and happily destroys and dishonors himself even as he longs to dishonor God and this state is natural man's desperate and wicked state in the middle of the Niagara River inescapably being swept in the power of his lusts toward moral corruption, even as he happily swims along with the river's force. This state is the just judgment and wrath of God for man's idolatry. This state is what man naturally exists within and willingly and irresistibly continues in, unless the spirit of the almighty God exerts his power through our gospel ministry to save him by revealing Christ's righteousness to him. This state is what we leave the nations in until the gospel comes to them through faithful gospel ministers sent and supported by local churches who will endure suffering by God's power to bring that gospel to them. This state is what we leave our city in when we stop gathering as members of a church, or when we stop preaching the biblical gospel, or when we sing gospel songs because we think people will be impressed or won by the tune. This state is what fathers leave our children in. When we think it's sufficient to work hard, to provide physically and emotionally, to give moral instruction and discipline and support, but never or rarely preach the gospel, explain the gospel, apply the gospel to them by the power of God and pray that God might save them by our gospel ministry. This state is what we leave our neighbors in, our coworkers in, our classmates in when we never confess Christ before them or explain the gospel to them. A gospel light church a gospelless Christian is cruel, leaving natural man in his natural state, dominated by sin, dishonored by his own immorality as the just judgment of God. Cruel, because even as this table before us proclaims, God has made a way for fallen man to be saved. Cruel. Because God has not only saved us by his mighty power through the gospel, but has called us, brothers and sisters, as a local church, to proclaim that saving message about what God has done in his Son to others whom God has promised by his own power to mercifully save and sustain through our ministry of that gospel. Isn't the table before us a sign and symbol of this very reality? While we were still sinners, happily, inescapably swept along by our idolatrous desires, unable and unwilling to look toward God for salvation, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. Christ died for us. While we were in the middle of the river, happily pursuing our lusts and sinful desires. Christ's body dishonored and broken by God's wrath against our wicked wants and immoral deeds. His blood poured out to satisfy justice and to secure us for salvation. His life given and taken back up again so that by his mighty grace, Christ might conquer our hearts. By the power of his grace, free us from sin And free us for God. Brothers and sisters, this gospel and its proclamation are necessary and essential to who we are, what we do, why we exist as the people of God and as the church of Jesus Christ. Because apart from this gospel, there is no salvation, but only further judgment. Let us then now direct our hearts to the preaching of this gospel as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let me pray. We pray, O God, that you would make your word effective in our hearts and minds. We pray, even having heard of our natural state in Adam, who we once were,